Chapters 40 through 42 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 40 The Nature of Osiris. 1. Osiris, a Corn God. The foregoing survey of the myth and ritual of Osiris may suffice to prove that in one of his aspects the god was a personification of the corn, which may be said to die and come to life again every year. Through all the pomp and glamour with which, in later times, the priests had invested his worship, the conception of him as the corn god comes clearly out in the festival of his death and resurrection, which was celebrated in the month of Koyak and at a later period in the month of Ather. That festival appears to have been essentially a festival of sowing, which properly fell at the time when the husbandmen actually committed the seed to the earth. On that occasion an effigy of the corn god, molded of earth and corn, was buried with funeral rites in the ground, in order that, dying there, he might come to life again with the new crops. The ceremony was, in fact, a charm to ensure the growth of the corn by sympathetic magic, and we may conjecture that, as such, it was practiced in a simple form by every Egyptian farmer on his fields long before it was adopted and transfigured by the priests in the stately ritual of the temple. In the modern, but doubtless ancient, Arab custom of burying the old man, namely a sheaf of wheat, in the harvest field, and praying that he may return from the dead, we see the germ out of which the worship of the corn god Osiris was probably developed. The details of his myth fit in well with his interpretation of the god. He was said to be the offspring of sky and earth. What more appropriate parentage could be invented for the corn, which springs from the ground that has been fertilized by the water of heaven? It is true that the land of Egypt owed its fertility directly to the Nile and not to showers, but the inhabitants must have known or guessed that the great river in its turn was fed by the rains which fell in the far interior. Again, the legend that Osiris was the first to teach men the use of corn would be most naturally told of the corn god himself. Further, the story that his mangled remains were scattered up and down the land, and buried in different places, may be a mythical way of expressing either the sowing or the winnowing of the grain. The latter interpretation, that Isis placed the severed limbs of Osiris on a corn sieve. Or, more probably, the legend may be a reminiscence of a custom of slaying a human victim, perhaps a representative of the corn spirit, and distributing his flesh or scattering his ashes over the fields to fertilize them. In modern Europe the figure of death is sometimes torn in pieces, and the fragments are then buried in the ground to make the crops grow well, and in other parts of the world human victims are treated in the same way. With regard to the ancient Egyptians, we have it on the authority of Manetho that they used to burn red-haired men and scatter their ashes with winnowing fans, and it is highly significant that this barbarous sacrifice was offered by the kings at the grave of Osiris. 
we may conjecture that the victims represented Osiris himself, who was annually slain, dismembered, and buried in their persons, that he might quicken the seed in the earth. Possibly in prehistoric times, the kings themselves played the part of the god, and were slain and dismembered in that character. Set, as well as Osiris, is said to have been torn in pieces after a reign of eighteen days, which was commemorated by an annual festival of the same length. According to one story, Romulus, the first king of Rome, was cut in pieces by the senators, who buried the fragments of him in the ground and the traditional day of his death, the 7th of July, was celebrated with certain curious rites, which were apparently connected with the artificial fertilization of the fig. Again, Greek legend told how Pinthus, king of Thebes, and Lycurgus, king of the Thracian Edonians, opposed the vine god Dionysus, and how the impious monarchs were rent in pieces, the one by the frenzied Bacchanals, the other by horses the Greek traditions may well be distorted reminiscences of a custom of sacrificing human beings, and especially divine kings, in the character of Dionysus, a god who resembled Osiris in many points and was said, like him, to have been torn limb from limb. We are told that in Caius men were rent to pieces as a sacrifice to Dionysus, and since they died the same death as their god, it is reasonable to suppose that they personated him. The story that the Thracian Orpheus was similarly torn limb from limb by the Bacchanals seems to indicate that he too perished in the character of the god whose death he died. It is significant that the Thracian Lycurgus, king of the Edonians, is said to have been put to death in order that the ground, which had ceased to be fruitful, might regain its fertility. Further, we read of a Norwegian king, Havdan the Black, whose body was cut up and buried in different parts of his kingdom for the sake of ensuring the fruitfulness of the earth. He is said to have been drowned at the age of forty through the breaking of the ice in spring. What followed his death is thus related by the old Norse historian Snari Starlson. He had been the most prosperous, literally blessed with abundance, of all kings. So greatly did men value him, that when the news came that he was dead, and his body removed to Hringariki, and intended for burial there, the chief men from Ramariki and Westfold and Heitmark came, and all requested that they might take his body with them, and bury it in their various provinces. They thought that it would bring abundance to those who obtained it. Eventually it was settled that the body was distributed in four places. The head was laid in a barrow at Stain, in Hringariki, and each party took away their own share and buried it. All these barrows are called Havdan's barrows. Unquote. It should be remembered that this Havdan belonged to the family of the Inglings, who traced their descent from Frey, the great Scandinavian god of fertility. The natives of Kiwai, an island lying off the north of the Fly River in British New Guinea, tell of a certain magician named Sigera, who had Sago for his totem. When Sigera was old and ill, he told the people that he would soon die, but that, nevertheless, he would cause their gardens to thrive. Accordingly, he instructed them that when he was dead they should cut him up and place pieces of his flesh in their gardens, but his head was to be buried in his own garden. 
of him it is said that he outlived the ordinary age and that no man knew his father but that he made the sago good and no one was hungry any more old men who were alive some years ago affirmed that they had known sigara in their youth and the general opinion of the Kiwai people seems to be that Sigara died not more than two generations ago. Taken altogether, these legends point to a widespread practice of dismembering the body of a king or magician and burying the pieces in different parts of the country in order to ensure the fertility of the ground and probably also the fecundity of man and beast. To return to the human victims, whose ashes the Egyptians scattered with winnowing fans, the red hair of these unfortunates was probably significant. For in Egypt, the oxen which were sacrificed had also to be red. A single black or white hair found on the beast would have disqualified it for the sacrifice. If, as I conjecture, these human sacrifices were intended to promote the growth of the crops, and the winnowing of their ashes seems to support this view, red-haired victims were perhaps selected as best fitted to personate the spirit of the ruddy grain. For when a god is represented by a living person, it is natural that the human representative should be chosen on the ground of a supposed resemblance to the divine original. Hence the ancient Mexicans, conceiving the maize as a personal being who went through the whole course of life between seed-time and harvest, sacrificed newborn babies when the maize was sown, older children when it had sprouted, and so on till it was fully ripe, when they sacrificed old men. A name for Osiris was the crop or harvest, and the ancients sometimes explained him as a personification of the corn. 2. Osiris a tree spirit But Osiris was more than a spirit of the corn. He was also a tree spirit, and this may perhaps have been his primitive character, since the worship of trees is naturally older in the history of religion than the worship of the cereals. The character of Osiris as a tree spirit was represented very graphically in a ceremony described by Firmicus Maternus. A pine tree having been cut down, the center was hollowed out, and with the wood thus excavated, an image of Osiris was made, which was then buried like a corpse in the hollow of the tree. It is hard to imagine how the conception of a tree as tenanted by a personal being could be more plainly expressed. The image of Osiris thus made was kept for a year and then burned, exactly as was done with the image of Attis, which was attached to the pine tree. The ceremony of cutting the tree, as described by Firmicus Maternus, appears to be alluded to by Plutarch. It was probably the ritual counterpart of the mythical discovery of the body of Osiris enclosed in the Erica tree. In the hall of Osiris at Dendera, the coffin containing the hawk-headed mummy of the god is clearly depicted as enclosed within a tree, apparently a conifer, the trunk and branches of which are seen above and below the coffin. The scene thus corresponds closely both to the myth and to the ceremony described by Firmicus Maternus. It accords with the character of Osiris as a tree spirit that his worshippers were forbidden to injure fruit trees, and with his character as a god of vegetation in general that they were not allowed to stop up wells of water, which are so important for the irrigation of hot southern lands. According to one legend, he taught men to train the vine to poles, to prune its superfluous foliage, and to extract the juice of the grape. 
In the Papyrus of Nepsini, written about 1550 BC, Osiris is depicted sitting in a shrine, from the roof of which hangs clusters of grapes. And in the Papyrus of the royal scribe Necht, we see the god enthroned in front of a pool, from the banks of which a luxuriant vine, with many bunches of grapes, grows towards the green face of the seated deity. The ivy was sacred to him, and was called his plant, because it is always green. 3. Osiris a God of Fertility As a god of vegetation, Osiris was naturally conceived as a god of creative energy in general, since men, at a certain stage of evolution, fail to distinguish between the reproductive powers of animals and of plants. Hence, a striking feature in his worship was the coarse but expressive symbolism by which this aspect of his nature was presented to the eye not merely of the initiated, but of the multitude. At his festival, women used to go about the villages, singing songs in his praise, and carrying obscene images of him, which they set in motion by means of strings. The custom was probably a charm to ensure the growth of the crops. A similar image of him, decked with all the fruits of the earth, is said to have stood in a temple before a figure of Isis, and in the chambers dedicated to him at Philae, the dead god is portrayed lying on his bier in an attitude which indicates in the plainest way that, even in death, his generative virtue was not extinct but only suspended, ready to prove a source of life and fertility to the world when the opportunity should offer. Hymns addressed to Osiris contain allusions to this important side of his nature. In one of them it is said that the world waxes green in triumph through him, and another declares, Thou art the father and mother of mankind, they live on thy breath, they subsist on the flesh of thy body. We may conjecture that in this paternal aspect he was supposed, like other gods of fertility, to bless men and women with offspring, and that the processions at his festival were intended to promote this object as well as to quicken the seed in the ground. It would be to misjudge ancient religion, to denounce as lewd and profligate, the emblems and the ceremonies which the Egyptians employed for the purpose of giving effect to this conception of the divine nature. The ends which they proposed to themselves in these rites were natural and laudable. Only the means they adopted to compass them were mistaken. A similar fallacy induced the Greeks to adopt a like symbolism in their Dionysiac festivals, and the superficial but striking resemblance thus produced between the two religions has, perhaps more than anything else, misled inquirers, both ancient and modern, into identifying worships which, though certainly akin in nature, are perfectly distinct and independent in origin. 4. Osiris a God of the Dead we have seen that, in one of his aspects, Osiris was the ruler and judge of the dead. To a people like the Egyptians, who not only believed in a life beyond the grave, but actually spent much of their time, labor, and money in preparing for it, this office of the god must have appeared hardly, if at all, less important than his function of making the earth to bring forth its fruits in due season. We may assume that in the faith of his worshippers, the two provinces of the god were intimately connected. In laying their dead in the grave, they committed them to his keeping, who could raise them from the dust to life eternal, even as he caused the sea to spring from the ground. 
Of that faith, the corn-stuffed effigies of Osiris, found in Egyptian tombs, furnish an eloquent and unequivocal testimony. They were, at once, an emblem and an instrument of resurrection. Thus, from the sprouting of the grain, the ancient Egyptians drew an augury of human immortality. They are not the only people who have built the same lofty hopes on the same slender foundation. A god, who thus fed his people with his own broken body in this life, and who held out to them a promise of a blissful eternity in a better world hereafter, naturally reigned supreme in their affections. We need not wonder, therefore, that in Egypt the worship of the other gods was overshadowed by that of Osiris, and that, while they were revered each in his own district, he and his divine partner Isis were adored in all. Chapter 41 Isis The original meaning of the goddess Isis is still more difficult to determine than that of her brother and husband Osiris. Her attributes and epithets were so numerous that in the hieroglyphics she is called the many-named, the thousand-named, and in Greek inscriptions, the myriad-named. Yet in her complex nature, it is perhaps still possible to detect the original nucleus round which, by a slow process of accretion, the other elements gathered. For if her brother and husband Osiris was in one of his aspects the corn god, as we have seen reason to believe, she must surely have been the corn goddess. There are at least some grounds for thinking so. For if we may trust Diodorus Siculus, whose authority appears to have been the Egyptian historian Manetho, the discovery of wheat and barley was attributed to Isis, and at her festival stalks of these grains were carried in procession to commemorate the boon she had conferred on men. A further detail is added by Augustine. He says that Isis made the discovery of barley at the moment when she was sacrificing to the common ancestors of her husband and herself, all of whom had been kings, and that she showed the newly discovered ears of barley to Osiris and his counselor Thoth, or Mercury, as Roman writers called him. That is why, adds Augustine, they identify Isis with Ceres. Further, at harvest time, when the Egyptian reapers had cut the first stalks, they laid them down and beat their breasts, wailing and calling upon Isis. The custom has been already explained as a lament for the corn spirit slain under the sickle. Amongst the epithets by which Isis is designated in the inscriptions are creatress of green things, green goddess, whose green color is like unto the greenness of the earth, lady of bread, lady of beer, lady of abundance. According to Bruch, she is not only the creatress of the fresh verdure of vegetation which covers the earth, but is actually the green cornfield itself, which is personified as a goddess. This is confirmed by her epithet Soket, or Soket, meaning a cornfield, a sense which the word still retains in Coptic. The Greeks conceived of Isis as a corn goddess, for they identified her with Demeter. In a Greek epigram she is described as she who has given birth to the fruits of the earth, and the mother of the ears of corn. And in a hymn composed in her honor, she speaks of herself as queen of the wheat field, and is described as charged with the care of the fruitful furrow's wheat-rich path. 
Accordingly, Greek or Roman artists often represented her with ears of corn on her head or in her hand. Such, we may suppose, was Isis in the olden time, a rustic corn mother adored with uncouth rites by Egyptian swains. But the homely features of the clownish goddess could hardly be traced in the refined, the saintly form which, spiritualized by ages of religious evolution, she presented to her worshippers of after-days as the true wife, the tender mother, the beneficent queen of nature, encircled with the nimbus of moral purity, of immemorial and mysterious sanctity. Thus chastened and transfigured, she won many hearts far beyond the boundaries of her native land. In that welter of religions, which accompanied the decline of national life in antiquity, her worship was one of the most popular at Rome and throughout the empire. Some of the Roman emperors themselves were openly addicted to it. And, however the religion of Isis may, like any other, have been often worn as a cloak by men and women of loose life, her rites appear, on the whole, to have been honorably distinguished by a dignity and composure, a solemnity and decorum, well fitted to soothe the troubled mind, to ease the burdened heart. They appealed, therefore, to gentle spirits, and above all to women, whom the bloody and licentious rites of other oriental goddesses only shocked and repelled. We need not wonder, then, that in a period of decadence, when traditional faiths were shaken, when systems clashed, when men's minds were disquieted, when the fabric of empire itself, once deemed eternal, began to show ominous rents and fissures, the serene figure of Isis, with her spiritual calm, her gracious promise of immortality, should have appeared to many like a star in a stormy sky, and should have roused in their breasts a rapture of devotion not unlike that which was paid in the Middle Ages to the Virgin Mary. Indeed, her stately ritual, with its shaven and tonsured priests, its matins and vespers, its tinkling music, its baptism and aspersions of holy water, its solemn processions, its jeweled images of the Mother of God, presented many points of similarity to the pomps and ceremonies of Catholicism. The resemblance need not be purely accidental. Ancient Egypt may have contributed its share to the gorgeous symbolism of the Catholic Church, as well as to the pale abstractions of her theology. Certainly, in art, the figure of Isis, suckling the infant Horus, is so like that of the Madonna and child, that it has, sometimes, received the adoration of ignorant Christians. And to Isis, in her later character of patroness of mariners, the Virgin Mary perhaps owes her beautiful epithet of Stella Maris, Star of the Sea, under which she is adored by tempest-tossed sailors. The attributes of a marine deity may have been bestowed on Isis by the seafaring Greeks of Alexandria. They are quite foreign to her original character, and to the habits of the Egyptians, who had no love of the sea. On this hypothesis, Sirius, the bright star of Isis, which on July mornings rises from the glassy waves of the eastern Mediterranean, a harbinger of halcyon weather to mariners, was the true Stella Maris, the star of the sea. Chapter 42 Osiris and the Sun Osiris has been sometimes interpreted as the sun god, and in modern times, 
This view has been held by so many distinguished writers that it deserves a brief examination. If we inquire on what evidence Osiris has been identified with the sun or the sun god, it will be found on analysis to be minute in quantity and dubious, where it is not absolutely worthless, in quality. The diligent Yablonsky, the first modern scholar to collect and sift the testimony of classical writers on Egyptian religion, says that it can be shown in many ways that Osiris is the sun, and that he could produce a cloud of witnesses to prove it, but that it is needless to do so, since no learned man is ignorant of the fact. Of the ancient writers whom he condescends to quote, the only two who expressly identify Osiris with the sun are Diodorus and Macrobius, but little weight can be attached to their evidence for the statement of Diodorus is vague and rhetorical, and the reasons which Macrobius, one of the fathers of solar mythology, assigns for the identification are exceedingly slight. The ground upon which some modern writers seem chiefly to rely for the identification of Osiris with the sun is that the story of his death fits better with the solar phenomena than with any other in nature. It may readily be admitted that the daily appearance and disappearance of the sun might very naturally be expressed by a myth of his death and resurrection, and writers who regard Osiris as the sun are careful to indicate that it is the diurnal, and not the annual, course of the sun to which they understand the myth to apply. Thus Renouf, who identified Osiris with the sun, admitted that the Egyptian sun could not, with any show of reason, be described as dead in winter. But if his daily death was the theme of the legend, why was it celebrated by an annual ceremony? This fact alone seems fatal to the interpretation of the myth as descriptive of sunset and sunrise. Again, though the sun may be said to die daily, in what sense can he be said to be torn in pieces? In the course of our inquiry, it has, I trust, been made clear that there is another natural phenomenon to which the conception of death and resurrection is as applicable as to sunset and sunrise, and which, as a matter of fact, has been so conceived and represented in folk custom. That phenomenon is the annual growth and decay of vegetation. A strong reason for interpreting the death of Osiris as the decay of vegetation rather than as the sunset, is to be found in the general, though not unanimous, voice of antiquity, which classed together the worship and myths of Osiris, Adonis, Attis, Dionysus, and Demeter, as religions of essentially the same type. The consensus of ancient opinion on this subject seems too great to be rejected as a mere fancy. So closely did the rites of Osiris resemble those of Adonis at Byblus, that some of the people at Byblus themselves maintained that it was Osiris and not Adonis whose death was mourned by them. Such a view could certainly not have been held if the rituals of the two gods had not been so alike as to be almost indistinguishable. Herodotus found the similarity between the rites of Osiris and Dionysus so great that he thought it impossible the latter could have arisen independently. They must, he supposed, have been recently borrowed, with slight alterations, by the Greeks from the Egyptians. Again, Plutarch, a very keen student of comparative religion, insists upon the detailed resemblance of the rites of Osiris to those of Dionysus. 
we cannot reject the evidence of such intelligent and trustworthy witnesses on plain matters of fact which fell under their own cognizance. Their explanation of the worships it is indeed possible to reject, for the meaning of religious cults is often open to question. But resemblances of ritual are matters of observation. Therefore those who explain Osiris as the sun are driven to the alternative of either dismissing as mistaken the testimony of antiquity to the similarity of the rites of Osiris, Adonis, Addis, Dionysus, and Demeter, or of interpreting all these rites as sun-worship. No modern scholar has fairly faced and accepted either side of this alternative. To accept the former would be to affirm that we know the rights of these deities better than the men who practiced, or at least who witnessed them. To accept the latter would involve a wrenching, clipping, mangling, and distorting of myth and ritual from which even Macrobius shrank. On the other hand, the view that the essence of all these rites was the mimic death and revival of vegetation explains them separately and collectively in an easy and natural way, and harmonizes with the general testimony borne by the ancients to their substantial similarity. End of chapters 40 through 42